Man, it's so good to be here this morning, and I'm excited to, uh, to share with you what I, what I hope will be a, a helpful word. Uh, you can turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15, and um, as you're turning there, I want to share um, a little bit of a story of something that I saw uh, recently on, uh, I was watching 60 Minutes or 2020 or um, Gotcha Investigations, I don't remember which one it was, but it was one of these shows where they, uh, they, uh, you know, they, they explore a problem, and what they were talking about was that in uh, the way that education is done today with colleges and schools, with more and more of it being online, and even if you're not going online, if you're going to a physical location, but so much of the work is turned in online that like, plagiarism has become this huge issue, that people are turning in papers that they didn't actually write, and it's becoming harder and harder to validate, like who wrote the paper and how did it work and all that stuff, and so one of the fascinating things is they brought this guy on and they interviewed him. And this was a guy who had created a business, created this website where he will offer to write you a paper. You go on there, you tell him what the subject is, you tell him how long it's got to be, give him the details, you pay him a fee. I think it's a pretty sizable fee. Uh, you pay it, he writes the paper, and he gives it to you. And so I was kind of amazed. I'm like, are the police like around the corner waiting for this interview to end to like come and, and grab this guy? Right? And so they start interviewing him and they say, like, hey, you know. Um, like, isn't this illegal, what you're doing? And he said, well, he said, no. He's like, it's not illegal for me to set up the website. It's not illegal for me to offer to write the paper. It's not illegal for me to write the paper. It's not illegal for me to sell the paper. Now, what they do after I sell them that paper is up to them, and that may or may not be illegal, but, but what I'm doing is not illegal. I'm just taking advantage of uh, there's a desire for this, and I have the ability to do it, and so I'm going to do it. And so I watched it, and I said, yeah, I guess he's right, <laughs> But, you know, for my three daughters that are growing up, I don't aspire uh, for any of them to be uh, plagiarist paper writers, right? Like, I don't, I don't want them to ghostwrite people's uh, way through school. That's not something. And so even though it was legally permissible, uh, it wasn't morally right. And so that's the center of what we're going to look at today that uh, we've been looking for the past several weeks at the freedom that we have in Christ, that there's no and in salvation, that it's through faith alone, in Christ alone, that's where our salvation rests. And so we have this incredible freedom. But what do we do with this freedom? What do we do with the things that are permissible to us? How do we handle the freedom that we've been given? It can make us really uncomfortable sometimes, uh, the amount of freedom that we have. And so uh, that's what we're going to explore this morning. And so I hope it will be incredibly tangible and, and helpful for you as we, as we dig into this. Will you join me in prayer as we begin? Father, thank you for this opportunity to open up your word and to study both the freedom that we have in Christ and also the, the wisdom that we should have in applying that freedom. God, that you, uh, you love us, you care for us like a good father, the good father that you are, that you want to lead us into a path that will honor and glorify you and, uh, and bring glory to your name. And so I thank you for the wisdom that you've shared in Scripture. I thank you for our opportunity to pull it open and to take a look at it. And, um, and I pray that our hearts will be changed by it and transformed. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So if you've turned to Acts chapter 15, uh, we're picking up in verse 22. And if you happen to be visiting with us today, thank you so much for coming to visit. We're so glad you're here. Let me catch you up to speed on where we're at. Uh, we've been going through the book of Acts, the early church. Uh, Paul and Barnabas. Paul was an enemy of the church. He got, had an encounter with Jesus that completely, radically transformed his life. And now he is uh, he's going out and just proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone that he can. And so he and Barnabas set out on this missionary journey, preaching the gospel to both Jews and to Gentiles, Gentiles being non-Jews, right? Anybody who's, who's not a Jew was a Gentile. And so Jews and Gentiles were hearing about the gospel and coming to a faith in Christ. And so they came back 
they're high-fiving, they're celebrating, man, this is awesome. And then some people come in uh, from the Jewish church in Jerusalem, and they say, hey, it's great that they've come to faith in Jesus, but they also still need to become Jewish. They need to be circumcised, they need to come under the law, uh, they need to be observant of the, of the law as delivered in the Old Testament in order to be saved. And so it became a great dispute. They took it all the way to Jerusalem to, uh, to Jesus' followers, the apostles, uh, those who had walked with Jesus on earth and who had been given a special position of leadership. And they came to them and they said, hey, we're having this dispute. We need to get it settled. And so the past couple of weeks, we've been breaking down what they talked about. And we saw the witness that came forward of Peter. Peter said, hey, listen, we can debate all we want, but God has already made it clear. He's poured his Holy Spirit out on the Gentiles. So he has spoken <laughs> and he has said that he has accepted them in, Right. And then we saw last week, Brian shared with us that, that they listened up to God, that James, the brother of Jesus, came and said, not only has God demonstrated it through what, through what he's done through Peter and through Paul and Barnabas, but he's also told us in his word, in scripture, that this was going to happen. And so this is a fulfillment of what God promised was going to happen. And so the unanimous uh, consent of the, the leaders was that, yes, Gentiles are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, that there's no and, there's no additional thing to come on it. And so the next thing, obviously, to do after coming to this decision is how do we share this good news uh, with the rest of the church? And that's where we pick it up in verse 22. You guys with me? Follow all that? That's good. This is like that previously on the book of Acts. It's a part-time job of mine, uh, voiceovers. Verse 22, then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, in Syria, Cilicia, and some um, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds... Although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things um, by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols, and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So they send this letter, and, um, and, and they send it. And so in studying this passage, and in reading through different commentaries and scholars, that, uh, that there's this, this great understanding that this is a powerful moment in the church, uh, but there's also a little bit of, of uh, speculation and, and consideration of like, well, hold on a second, uh, didn't they just say that it's Jesus only? <laughs> it's nothing else. It's just Jesus. But then they write this letter, and they say, hey, yeah, it's salvation through faith in Christ, but we would also encourage you to do the following things. Did they just add an and onto, uh, you know, did they finish it, and then they'd go back and add an and onto it? Was James somehow giving in to the circumcision party? Were they, were they kind of already missing the point that they had just made? And I would argue, no, that's, that's not at all what's happening here. What we're seeing here is good, loving, pastoral care uh, from James to the churches that he's speaking to. And so they're taking the truth, the central truth is this, that salvation is through faith in Christ alone. And they're applying it into their life and their situation. They're saying, hey, okay, we have complete freedom. Jesus has done it all. Uh, it's all through him. Our salvation is not based on our own works of righteousness. It's based on him. So that's true. 
Now, what do you do with that, right? And so that's the question that we come every week. We come with this question of like, all right, so salvation is through Jesus. So, so wait, what does that mean for my life? What do, what do I do? Um, where, where do I go from here? And one of the dangers that could creep in early on is this, this sort of uh, inclination towards separating the spiritual and the physical and kind of saying, okay, so Jesus died for the sake of our souls. He's got our soul taken care of. That's all buttoned up now that I put my faith in Christ. So what I do with my physical body doesn't matter anymore. So I can pretty much just do whatever over here because the two are completely disconnected from each other. And it's a lie. And so much of Scripture contradicts that idea that what we do with our bodies is incredibly important. That how we live is incredibly important, not for our salvation, uh, but number one, to be used by God in a powerful way. And number two, to give a witness to ourselves and to the world that we are Christ's, that we are his servants, right? That we can't say that we follow him and then go do other things and it becomes a false witness. So, so there's many ways. The other thing that, that demonstrates that they were doing this in pastoral wisdom is that they sent Judas and Silas along with them. Uh, it, was, it was truth delivered through a person. And that's really what we seek to do here at Riverside, that um, uh, when we think about preaching, and you guys have all experienced this, right? You're, you're connoisseurs of preaching. You've, you've seen it in different churches and things, and you'll go and you'll say, that was a good sermon, or that wasn't so good. I know, for me, you're always like, man, nailed it. Perfect every time, right? But in other churches, no, I'm just kidding. Um, but one of the things, so, so when I think about it, I think about it this way. If you're preaching false doctrine, if you're preaching heresy, if you're preaching wrong things, um, that gets thrown out on the side, right? That's just, that's just bad news. That, that, that should be rejected completely. If, if you're coming in and you're preaching truth, but you're delivering it poorly in a disorganized, confusing way that nobody can follow and that isn't really helpful, um, then you haven't, uh, it's maybe not negative, but it's not positive either, right? Uh, but then there's another category uh, that I've seen, uh, which is people will come and they'll just slam down truth, right? They'll just come and say, God is holy, so you must be holy, let us pray, right? <laughs> and you're like, that's true biblically, but not incredibly helpful because I don't really know how to do that. And so I need somebody to kind of walk me through it, taking, taking the truth of the Bible. And so that's what we desire to do. The best is to take the timeless truth of Scripture that never changes and apply it to our lives and our situations and our hearts here and now today. That's what's helpful. That's what glorifies and honors God. And so that's what they did. They sent Judas and Silas along, and they delivered truth through a person. Because if we aren't going to do that, we've got Bibles in the racks here. I could just hand out to each one of you and say, here it is. This is a, I really can't add anything to this, right? This is, this is purest truth. Just take this home and read it. You don't even need me, right? And there's an element in which you don't need me, right? But, but we gather together as the church because there's truth delivered through a personhood, uh, through a personality, and in a way that's tangible that you can apply it into your life. And so that's really what I believe they were doing through this letter and, and through the way that they approached it. And so within this, there's, there's kind of two categories of things. The, the first three things that they mention are related to food, uh, taking in food and things that were connected with that. And then the fourth thing was related to sexual immorality. And so there's, there's kind of, we can look at them in, in, in kind of two categories with that. And so let's start with the food issues and let me help you understand what this meant. Because not a lot of you are struggling with eating food sacrificed to idols, Right? The closest I get is when I go into the Chinese food restaurant and I see the little statue with the incense burning and the rotten orange. Have you guys seen this? What's that all about? And, and I go and I'm buying the food, but I'm like, I feel a little weird about this. Like, I don't know. This is kind of strange. But it's all good, right? So, so let's understand this so we contextualize it and bring it into to our thing. So what was happening at this time is that there were all these false gods. There was false idol worship. There was, there was all this stuff that was prevalent 
in the Gentile society. And so they would go to this false god's temple. They would bring their meat offering because they wanted to have, uh, a, you know, they wanted their wife to have a baby or they wanted to have a good crop or they wanted to have whatever they were trying to obtain. And the, the made-up rules said, you have to do this, this, and this. So they would bring their big hunk of steak. They would take it to the altar. They would say their prayer, do their ceremony, whatever it was. They would leave. They would feel like, all right, I got what I wanted out of that. Then the priests would collect up all this meat. And be like, man, we got all this meat. And it's going to go rancid if we don't do something with it. So they would take it down to the market. And they would put the 50% off sticker. Like, you know how you go into like Giant or Wegmans or whatever. And you look for that. I'm always looking for those yellow tags. Like, oh, yeah, here's a good steak. As long as I cook it today, I'm good, right? So they go and they put the discounted meat market. And you shoo the flies away, and you're like, oh, man, what a great price on this meat, right? And you take it home, and you cook it. And so, so this was going on, and for the Gentiles, they're like, hey, man, cheap meat, this is great. But for the Jews, this was a significant problem. Number one, it was connected to idolatry, idol worship, and so so much of the law pushed them away from having anything to do with idolatry. Uh, number two, there was, there was all kinds of ceremonial food laws, because the Old Testament points to the Jewish people over and over again to the holiness of God, his high standard, how incredibly impossible it is to obtain to the holiness and the righteousness of God. And so like, hey, I just, I, I'm hungry. I just want to eat a meal. Well, whoa, 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 hold on. <laughs> First of all, you got to go wash your hands ceremonially. You got to get yourself cleansed. You got to make sure you haven't been touching anything that's impure. You got to know where that meat came from. Where, you know, where, where did that grow up? Who raised it? Who butchered it? What happened? Did it go through anything in the process, right? This whole kosher food process. And so there was rigid restrictions on them. And it can be a really beautiful thing because it points to the holiness of God. They had it constantly imprinted on their hearts. God is holy. His standard is high. Uh, you know, we are sinful and we are, we are unworthy of standing before him, right? And so, so they had a great sense of that. And so the problem is, is now they're writing this letter into a church where we have these Gentile believers. Hey, last week I was sacrificing uh, to this false god and I was doing all this crazy stuff. But then I heard about Jesus and the Holy Spirit resonated in my soul, and I came to put my faith and my trust in him. And so now I'm in this church, and, and some of the people in the church uh, are Jews. Uh, they, they grew up uh, observing the Old Testament scriptures and, and following the law. And so now we're there, and I say to my Jewish brother, Keith, hey, Keith, do you want to, uh, it's cool that we're both fathers of Jesus now. Do you want to come over to my house this week and have dinner and break bread and just enjoy fellowship? And Keith's like, yeah, sure, brother, I would love to do that. I, I heard the Jerusalem Council say that, that you guys are in with us, and this is awesome. So Keith comes over to my house, and I slop down the, the bloody, you know, idol meat in front of me, like, chow down, brother. And he's like, well, well, hold on a second. I've never really eaten anything like this. Do you know where it came from? He's like, yeah, from the temple down here, right? It was like, it was half price. It was a great deal. And uh, I know God wants us to be good stewards of our money, so I'm, I'm feeling really good about this deal that I got. And Keith's like, his conscience is pricked because he's like, I've never... God, this goes against everything I was raised and taught to believe, and so I've created a, a, a difficulty of conscience for him. He's my brother in Christ. I want to love him. I want to serve him. But now I've created a problem for him where I'm asking him to either violate his conscience or risk being rude to me and saying, like, I'm sorry, I can't eat that food, which would be offensive. And so I put him in a very difficult place. And so that's the challenge related to a lot of the food things, that, and it points to the purity of God. And and the cool thing, and this has been amazing in, in studying this, is that when you read through the book of Acts and then you take it and read into the letters that Paul wrote, it's incredible how they just come to life in Paul pulling out these arguments. And so the whole letter of 1 Corinthians has a ton to say about some of these really specific things. Listen to what Paul says in his letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 8, picking up in verse 4. You can turn there in your Bible, or you can just listen to me read it. Um, you're going to have to be fast, though, because I didn't give you much time to turn, so... 
says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols. Oh, wait, that's what we're talking about. Awesome. All right, what does he say, right? As to the offering uh, of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from which whom all thing, are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist, who, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. I should put it on the screen because I read it terribly. But <laughs> what he's saying there to paraphrase is there's other gods and lords, right? But we know that there's only one real God. These other ones are make-believe entities. They, they're not real gods. And so, so we're not interacting with a, a, another God, a competing God, that there is only one God. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as if it was really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. And so what he essentially says is, like, hey, yeah, you've got freedom. You, you've got the freedom that, you know, you can eat the food, don't eat the food. He, he basically says it's morally ambiguous. There's not good or bad in eating it, but it's, it's the heart in what you're doing. If you say, hey, that's, this was sacrificed to that God, but that's, he's, he doesn't exist. He's not real. It doesn't matter, Right? Um, that, that that's not essential. It might not be a trouble for you, but it could be a real trouble for the person uh, that you're uh, that you're offering it up to, or for your brother or sister who sees you walking into a, a pagan god all you can eat uh, a buffet, right? The, the Eastern buffet of uh, whatever. Anyways, I don't. You guys know how it is, right? So so that's not. Let's let's just be straight, right? Say that's not an issue for me, right? That's not an issue, right? So so what is the issue? What does it look like in your life? What is the thing in which you have freedom, but you may need to consider restricting yourself for the benefit of your brothers and sisters? What about alcohol? What do we do with that, right? Paul talks about this in Romans, right? That they were called, uh, it says, drink, but do not be drunk. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, right? And so for you, alcohol might not be an issue. You have a drink, um, you know, it, it, it's, it's not a big deal. But Thanksgiving's coming up, right? On Thanksgiving Day, if you have a brother or a sister or an uncle or an aunt or a mother or father or a child who struggles with alcoholism, when they come walking in the door on Thanksgiving Day, are you going to be like, hey, man, you want a beer? Right? How offensive would that be? Right? You know how hard they've struggled, and you're going to throw that in their face? Or are you even going to pop one open and drink it in front of them? Like, No, you're going to limit yourself from that because of your love for them, even though you have freedom in that. You recognize it's not, that's not what defiles you. But out of love, you would do that. So, so is it that? Is it, is it what you're, you're consuming in media? Is it television shows and, and movies and, and just the way you're engaging with our culture? Do you say, hey, I have rock-solid confidence in Christ. I know uh, where, my, uh, where my identity is. I know what's right and good. And so I can, I can enjoy the culture and not be, trans, you know, I cannot have it affect my mind. 
which a lot of times we deceive ourselves on that, right? We don't think, we don't realize how much culture is affecting us. And so if you're posting on Facebook, scripture verse, praise the Lord, just sitting here with my morning Joe and my Bible, I love Jesus. Oh man, that rated R movie that was Borderline X was so awesome. That was the, let me give you my 13-page review of everything that was amazing about this film, right? People are going to look at you and be like, man, what a hypocrite. I thought they were all about Jesus. How can, they, how can they consume that, right? And so you might have freedom in it. You might be able to say, man, this is art. I, I appreciate for the art that it is. Um, but maybe not, right? Maybe we need to think about what effect that's having on, not just on ourselves, but on the people around us. How are the decisions you're making within your freedom having ripple effects on those who may not be at the place that you are in your faith? And if you're honest with yourself, is maybe your faith being corrupted a little bit too uh, in consuming these things, you know? We could go on and on. You, you may have a unique thing that's coming to your heart in this, the, the thing that you're partaking of. I know for me, I was, I was single for a long time before I met my beautiful wife and finally got married. And so I learned, you know, as a single man that there were some things that just were not good and right for me to take into to my heart and into my eyes, even though they were rated PG-13. And I'm like, hey, I'm 13. I can handle this, right? Like, I don't need my parents to come in with me. Legally, I'm good, right? But morally... It was, it was something that would lead me towards lust or, or, or towards corrupted thought or just a, a loose tongue profanity. I'd, you know, I'd catch myself like driving down the highway and somebody catch me up and I'd be like, whoa, where did that come from? You know, what you put in is what comes out sometimes. And so, so God wants us to use our freedom wisely uh, for his glory and for the, glory of, uh, for the benefit of, of those around us. What is the greatest command? What did Jesus say? The greatest command is this, to love the Lord your God with all your soul, mind, heart, and strength and to what? Love your neighbor as yourself, right? And so how we use our freedom really breaks down to that. Does it glorify God? Does it demonstrate love for my neighbor? Does it demonstrate love for myself? And so that's a real simple filter you can put it through, right? When you're wrestling through, and each of us, you know, a thousand times a day has choices. We have choices. Am I going to watch this? Am I not going to watch this? Am I going to look or am I going to look away? Am I going to turn the channel or am I going to leave it go? What am I going to order when I go to the restaurant, you know? Um, how am I going to do this? And we're all, um, as Christians, as sons and daughters of the king, uh, we have a high standard laid before us. Do you do the, the bachelor party to Vegas with your buddies when they invite you, right? Morally, you're like, hey, that doesn't remove my salvation if I go to Vegas. But I know what's going to happen there. Do I want to be there? Does it appear that I'm condoning this? Somebody's got a bachelor party planned, don't you? I've, you know, this is real world. This is what I've, I've talked about these things with, with people, and they're wrestling like, hey, do we, what do I do here? What do I do? This is where we pray, we look for the guiding of the Holy Spirit, but we want to use our freedom wisely. It doesn't mean that we just do whatever we want to do. Now, the other piece that he talks about here is sexual immorality. And just to simplify it, it's, it's a sexual relationship with anyone outside of marriage. Yeah. Outside of uh, God's perfect plan is for a man and woman to come together in, in union and marriage and and sex is a gift that's been given to, to seal that covenant. It's a blessing. It allows for procreation. And so there's many benefits and goodness out of it. But anything, anything outside of that is idolatry. It puts pleasure and our desires ahead of God's plan and his covenant relationship. And so I believe the reason James focused on this. Now, the food thing was a really significant issue, right? You can see why that was an issue. Like, hey, uh, my Jewish brother Keith, you're Jewish for today. You like that? So <laughs> my Jewish brother Keith and I, 
we want to have dinner together. What are we going to eat? How are we going to do this? It's super practical, right? The things I share with you, hopefully, are super practical, right? Alcohol, how we consume media, what we're posting on Facebook, all this. Those are super practical. Um, This second issue, the issue of how we use our bodies, is a universal issue that has been through all time. Now, just because he didn't mention murder or stealing, or th- it doesn't mean, okay, those things are good. I guess he didn't mention that, so I guess we're good to go, right? No, it's, it's understood that that moral code, like throughout culture, that's, that's pretty well understood. But this is one that every culture struggles with. And the Gentile cultures in this time had, a, had wild ideas about the purpose and the use of our bodies and how we were supposed to treat and approach them. Listen to what, what Paul says earlier in the letter to Corinthians. He says in chapter 6, verse 12, he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And he goes on to talk about this issue that, um, that prostitution was a regular part of their society, and, and some of the believers... Uh, who had, had put their faith in Christ had yet, not yet come out of that understanding. And he said, no, 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 this is crazy, right? He says, flee from sexual immorality, verse 18. Every other sin a person commits is outside of the body. But the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And Jesus has the final word on this, right? He always has the last word. In Mark 7, he says this, Mark 7, verse 14. Jesus called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable, and he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters not his heart, but his stomach, and is expelled, and thus he declared all foods clean. He said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these things come from within, and they defile a person. So what he's saying is that that, that it's not the stuff that we put into us. Oh, man, did I, did I eat that burger and not realize that it was an idle burger, right? Oh, man, now I'm unclean, right? Like, your conscience could be clean. You didn't know. That didn't make you dirty in an irreparable way. What makes you dirty is what comes out from your heart. The overflow of your heart is what reveals your uncleanness. And, and here's, here's the bad news and the good news, all right? The bad news is that we're all defiled, that we're all born with a sin nature. And there's things that, do you guys ever have this? It just comes out of you, and you're like, where did that come from? That's not who I am. That's not who I want to be. And yet, there it was. That was me, right? We deal with that. But when those moments happen, we have a choice. We can embrace it. We can say, yeah, that's just who I am. That's just, that's the way it is. I guess I'll never change. I guess that's who I am. Or we can confess. We can repent. We can be like, wow, God, I see that as ugly as, as you see it. I, I look at my sin and I'm appalled by it. Help me to change. Holy Spirit, transform me. Not so that I can be accepted by you. You've already accepted me. You're my savior. You died for me. You loved me. So it's not, it's not about that. It's I love you. And now I want to live in a way that honors and glorifies you and points other people to who you are. I got so much more, but I don't have time for it. Sorry. <laughs> 
you have to look at the outtakes later, right? Now, I'll just say this real quickly because uh, I love it because it connects so well with, with Riverside. Let's look at the final part of this passage, verse, uh, picking up in verse 30 here. Um, I think I have it. Or is it all in there? No, I did it all at once. I don't know what I'm doing. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. What does it look like when we live uh, with this, this sort of freedom, a loving freedom, when we're given the freedom but we use it with wisdom and use it to honor and glorify God and to love our neighbors and love ourselves? Well, there's three things I saw here. One is that there's a unity that allows for and embraces diversity, right? They can have peace. They can join together in the church and everybody doesn't have to look the same and everybody doesn't have to act the same. We don't all have to wear suits to be accepted. Uh, we don't all have to sing and appreciate the same style of worship music. Uh, some of us might uh, be more ceremonial and religious in our approach, and religious is probably not the right word, but you know, the formality of it shows us the highness of God. Others enjoy and embrace the freedom and the relationship, and we can come together. We don't all have to be the same. There can be unity uh, and diversity at the same time when this happens. The second thing is that there's rejoicing and encouraging. This is not a restriction. It doesn't push us down. It lifts us up. It elevates us. It helps us to find freedom and joy and excitement. And the third thing is that there's a multiplication of ministry. They could have came back, Paul and Barnabas could have came back by themselves, right, and said, hey, uh, we went to Jerusalem, we were right. Just want to let you guys know we were right. We got it. <laughs> uh, we told you, but we had to go up there to prove it. So now, so just so you know, we were right about the whole salvation thing. We got it, right? But they brought Judas and Silas back with them, and they affirmed it. And they could have said, hey, you guys keep getting the gospel wrong, so from now on, your, your sermon menu is a steady diet of PBJs, right? Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, Right? I came up, I worked on that all week. Please, you know, go with me on this, right? PBJs, come on. We're the only ones who know it. We're the only ones who got it. So nobody else can share it. But you guys got to come through us, right? What does that do? It, it elevates certain. It says you got to go through this path. You got to come here. No. What do we see here? I love that last sentence. Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. And this is what we embrace here at Riverside, that, that that as we learn and apply the gospel that we're called to go out and share it, and we want to see more and more people sharing and proclaiming it. It was awesome to come to the baptism service yesterday and to see uh, Bridget and Stephanie proclaiming and acting out the gospel with these ladies that they've been investing in and, and how God is using the ministry of that women's ministry and the leaders there into the lives of those women. That's beautiful. That's awesome. We want more of that, not less of that. We want more small group leaders. Oh, we want more people... Uh, we're putting together some stuff for the year end. I mean, we've preached, people from Riverside have preached, I don't know how many sermons in like eight or ten different churches this year. We've been able to send out, multiply the gospel, and that's what it looks like when we live in this sort of freedom. It's not a, a hierarchy. Everything doesn't flow through the funnel to the top, right? It's, it spreads wide, the power of the gospel. And so God may be calling you to repentance today. That might be where he's leading you. There might be something where you've abused the freedom that he's given you. And if that's your case, I want, I want to share with you um, briefly a word. I'm busting it out again. You know I'm doing it. Just go with it. A loving life. Just go buy it if you haven't done it already. I get nothing out of selling these books, so I'm not getting a commission, but I just get the joy of knowing that, um, that you're going to grow closer to Jesus through it. But listen to what he says about repentance. He says, repentance can be dramatic, but most repentance is a gentle rain, slowly softening the hardened soil of our hearts. 
Repentance can be just seeing yourself or someone else in a new way. If we focus just on big repentances, we can unwittingly become demanding, insisting that people absorb more change than they can make all at once. Seeing repentance as a gentle rain can make our rebukes gentler. Instead of going for a home run, we can go for singles. We can be thankful for small turns of the soul. In Psalm 23, the Lord restores my soul, and the Hebrew word for restores is shub, which means turn or return. He turns my soul. When Naomi returns to Israel to the house of the Lord, her soul is restored. Repentance is not merely conviction. It does something. And so your repentance may not be grand. It may not be audacious. You may not go get your DVD collection and run over it with a steamroller, although God may lead you to do that. (laughs) But it might be much more simple, but it's going to do something. So we have a beautiful picture of this, of what we're celebrating today. And so um, Fred and Jess, if I can invite you guys to come on, come on down. Um, many of you know Fred and Jess. We love these guys. <laughs> They've been a part of Riverside here for, for quite a while. And um, spoiler alert, the time has come. <laughs> uh, at the second service today, I'm going to have the privilege of, of uniting these guys together in marriage. <laughs> And it's a, it's a beautiful picture of, of what God's done and what God always does in Scripture. God takes us from where we are, and he turns an act of, of repentance and obedience into a celebration and a story of redemption. Uh, that God's forgiveness, uh, when we come to him, is full and complete, and the, the sky's the limit, right? That, that God doesn't, um, he, it says he separates our sins from us as far as the east is from the west. And so I just want to, uh, do you want to share or do you want me to share for you? All right. You guys know how hard public speaking is, right? And so, so uh, we've been talking with Fred and Jess for a while about marriage, and, um, and it's something that we've had an ongoing dialogue about. And so I went away on vacation a little while back. I came back, and the, and the Sunday I got back, Fred came up to me, and he said, man, we're ready. We, we want to get married. We want to make our relationship right in the eyes of the Lord. Um, and then he said something that really surprised me. He said, we want to do it at church on a Sunday. And I was like, wow, why do you, why do you guys want to do it at church? He's like, well, this community has, has blessed us so much. It's invested and poured into us as a family. Um, and, and it just feels right to do it with our family here at the church. And um, now I'm getting teary-eyed, man. Look at this. <laughs> so I just want to commend them. They could have said, hey, we want to make it right with the Lord. And so we booked an amazing trip to Aruba, all-inclusive. We're going to do a little small ceremony on the beach. Uh, we're going to kick by, back by the pool for a couple days, right? They could have done that. Uh, they could have gone off and did it. Uh, privately with the justice of the peace or me in my office, but they said, no, we want to come before our church family. Um, we want to make things right before the Lord and before each other. We want to honor each other in this way. And uh, man, what a blessing to our church and, and to your family. And so I'm so excited to be a part of this. I couldn't be more excited about what's going on today. And so uh, you are all, yeah, cheer it up. So you guys are invited. <laughs> now I'm going to, Donna, stop it. So, second service, I'm going to preach a shorter sermon. Uh, so, you, get the, you guys got, so you really got the good deal. You got the, uh, you got the long sermon. And then, but you're welcome to stick around. At the end of the second service, we're going to unite these guys in marriage. We got some cupcakes and cakes and stuff downstairs. We're going to celebrate with them afterwards. And so, if you can't stick around, uh, offer them your words of congratulations. But you're all invited to be a part of this really special day uh, that we're going to celebrate here at Riverside today. And so, guys, thank you so much. And I can't wait to see you in a little bit. All right. All right.
So that's what obedience, that's what using their freedom in wisdom looks like for those guys today. What does it look like for you today? How will you respond? Will you join me in prayer? Father, we're humbled. Um, everything in our nature and our spirit and our soul tells us that, that we've got to clean ourselves up, that we've made the mess and we've got to clean it up. And so we don't come to you because we think that, that you won't receive us. But you've gone to great length in your word to show us that you want us to come just as we are. And, uh, and you'll clean us up. <laughs> you'll make us right. That Every one of us has, has sin issues in our heart that we're dealing with. And in our pride, we pull back from you and we try and work it out on our own. But you say, no, come, lay it before me. Let me do it for you. That's, that's what I desire to do. I'm your father. I love you. And the amazing thing that, that we see over and over again in the testimony of our lives and our scriptures is that you take broken people and you redeem them and they make, you make them into a great story of your power and your redemptive work. It's the story of so many of us in this room. And so, God, whatever you've laid on our heart today, if you've pricked our conscience about something that we've been taking liberty in, if we've been taking freedom in an area where you're calling us to walk away, pray that we would have the courage to take that repentant act of walking away. It might not be a grand show. It might be a simple turn of the heart. But I pray we would follow through with it. And, Father, I pray if there's any here who don't know you today, who've never received the freedom that comes from Jesus Christ, if they've been trying to earn your love, if they've been trying to earn their salvation, through their own means, I pray that today that they would just lay it down. They would recognize that forgiveness is free. It's a free gift that you just want to give to them as they're willing to see Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. God, grant them the gift of repentance, I pray. In the name of Jesus.